TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to the Bike Nerds Podcast. This is episode 73. For over 25 years, Saris has been designing and manufacturing bicycle parking and infrastructure products to help cities, neighborhoods, businesses, and schools become more bike-friendly. Like Cedar Rapids, Iowa, a city that rebuilt itself with a focus on the bike after the 2008 flood. You can read up on Cedar Rapids' story over at sarasparking.com slash bike nerds. And while you're there, get entered to win a public toolbox. Saris is giving away one this month to one lucky listener. All you need to do is visit sarasparking.com slash bike nerds and sign up for their newsletter, which I highly encourage everyone to do. Thank you, Saris. Kyle, how's it going? First, I want to talk about the eclipse. Thank you. I've been waiting. Did you partake in the eclipse viewing today? I did indeed. Did you do so voluntarily or because of peer pressure? Voluntarily. Potentially a leader that peer pressured others. So you're an eclipse groupie. I wouldn't consider that. Mm -hmm. I was curious about what it would be like. What percent totality did you go for? We in Memphis, Tennessee had 20, had, what am I talking about? Had 94% totality. Right. And that was enough totality for you. You thought 94%. I'm just going to leave it right there. No. No. To be honest, if it were to happen again, I would take less time out of my day. I would make a point to see it. But I was like, well, like, this is really cool. It was really great to see, like, other people, good people watching. But I really want 100% totality. totality. So to do it again, you would have just gone all in, drove with the masses to a field somewhere in Kentucky. No. And watched this thing. I wouldn't have traveled. I would have, like, finger crossed it'll happen in Memphis. Oh, so so you're just sort of hoping that sometime in the future. Yeah. And I'm alive and but living in Memphis. But you're not so in, you're not so into it that you're willing to travel. Will not travel for a clip. Don't believe so. No. What about you? What's it like in Boulder? Uh, it's empty today because everybody's in Wyoming. Is that uh, was that on the path? Yeah, yeah. We're like at ninety five percent here. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Did so you about, look at about, about two hours north? Is a hundred percent. So did you view? I I did, but I'll. But very reluctantly, only because people in the office were climbing onto their roof, and I thought that would be fun. And I borrowed somebody else's glasses. I didn't even go to the problem. I didn't even go to the effort of buying my own glasses. Glasses were provided. Really? To me. Nice. If you didn't have glasses, would you have partaken in? Mm, I could have easily found something else to do. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I'm glad I participated in it. The most fun was going, we watched it along the Mississippi, which was nice, mm-hmm. and getting in, getting back to our office downtown, kind of observing people just like standing on the side of downtown streets, like four individuals all sharing one pair of glasses, or like you could tell like there was like a Staples like semi-truck doing deliver deliveries, and these like two men that work together, you know, sharing a moment, seeing the total eclipse in 2017. I enjoyed like the people watching much better than the actual eclipse from my perspective. So I've got two news stories that have come out of the eclipse that I think uh, sum up my feelings today. Okay. One from uh, renowned astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. He uh, tweeted, total solar eclipses occur somewhere on Earth every two years or so. Yep. So just calm yourself when people tell you they're rare. 
Yeah, well, I had that's, like that's this, sort of that's sort of my opinion. <laughs> well, this morning it was like, oh, like in twenty twenty four, there's going to be one in America again. I think I was potentially more excited, and then this morning I did more research, and I was like, oh yeah, like this happens every eighteen to twenty four months. Snooze. What's the other piece of news? Uh, the other piece of news. <laughs> this is and this is the best. Uh, there's a number of news outlets reporting this, but essentially it's Donald Trump looks at the sun (laughs) during the full solar eclipse. (laughs) So apparently while he's standing on the balcony with his wife and son, he takes off his glasses for a second, stares up into the sun without his glasses on. And you can hear aides in the background going, don't look, don't look. Oh, my God. I mean, if you don't believe in science, why would you believe that you shouldn't look at the solar eclipse? Uh, I don't know. So I'm both disinterested and totally uh, I found vindication today, knowing that. That is. Uh, I just saw the photo. That is it, the most photo. The photo thing. sells it. The photo is really what what really earns uh, that art, the headline, the stripes. Just he's, he's just looking up with his eyes all squinty. Hopefully, burning, <laughs> burning holes into his retinas while he's doing so. Oh my gosh! What if he couldn't? He's doing like an address tonight. What if he couldn't? What if it was canceled because something? <laughs> I That's know. hilarious. I don't know, uh, but I'm glad that Eclipse 2017 is over. We can, it's over. We can go about us. go about our normally scheduled lives today. I know Ethan was going to watch it at school. They had we had to sign a permission slip to give him permission to do so. Um, I thought I thought the inter- most interesting thing maybe about the eclipse was sort of how eerie the light was. Yeah, it I kind of felt just, like I was in an Instagram filter. Yeah, it just wasn't. It wasn't just dark, right? It was like weird color, dark, um, soft lighting. It kind of reminded me of like what Memphis looks like sometimes before, like a tornado is about to come through. Uh, yes, we had that conversation <laughs> at Martyrs Park. Yeah, it's like it was, oh, it's, we were all like, "This is like eerie and like a storm sort of way." Yeah, this is tornado weather, um, yeah, for sure. But now we can get on with the business at hand, saving the world is, by, by bicycle. Which is just the two of us this week. It is just the two of us. It's been so long. It it feels like it's been so long, and in some ways, it actually has. We we you know do these episodes every time we switch a theme. And our last theme actually went a few episodes longer than we had initially anticipated. So it's been a while since it's just been you and I. It's nice to hear just your voice. No offense to our guests, of course. Unfortunately for our listeners, it's just our voices today. Rambling on. (laughs) About the eclipse. They're like, everybody else is like, we're sick of it too. Please stop talking about it. Um, Yeah. So So, what's what's your view on Beyond Bikes? Beyond Bikes. What a great theme. Um, And, you know, I'll just preface this, and I think I said this when we were sort of going into Beyond Bikes, but I feel like a lot of what we actually talk about is within the theme of Beyond Bikes, right? It's not, we aren't here delivering gear reviews or talking about the greatest trails or, you know, sort of talking about bicycling and you know, those kinds of terms. So I, I feel like the show in some ways is already about beyond bikes, but this was, but it was nice to sort of nice to take a, a deep dive into that a little bit and really sort of step outside the bounds of some of the things that we talk about. Um, and I, I had a really great time. It was, it was, it was refreshing, right. To not have to, uh, to, to have sort of other content experts tell us what they're really into um, and the ways in which bicycles are um, helping them. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this theme all year. Mm-hmm. And I was just really kind of just encouraged by like the different perspectives. I think we heard some different perspectives because people were coming from a different place of best practices and experiences and knowledge. And I really enjoyed kind of that opportunity to, on a personal and professional level, kind of learn from from folks that come from a different perspective. And I think because I come, I think my background is more aligned within the Beyond Bikes theme as well. So that was fun to, to maybe talk with some, some folks that had potentially similar backgrounds to, to kind of my tra- trajectory and how I ended up as a bike nerd. 
Yeah, did you have a favorite uh, interview for this time? You know, Jesse Singer mm-hmm. was really fantastic. Yeah. I also really enjoyed Noel and Zhao Dang. Are you just going to name all of the guests? No, I mean, I loved all of them, <laughs> but those are my top three. Yeah. I don't know if we've ever done this before. Where we've, where we've picked favorites? Where we've picked favorites. Yeah. I mean, people will tell uh, you picking favorites. Actually, they're all my favorite. Picking favorite children's hard, but at the end of the day, you've kind of got a favorite kid. So, so what's, what's your favorite? Uh, you know, I actually really enjoy talking... Uh, with Lyle and Allison from the Urban Bicycle Food Ministry. Yes. Um, a lot of really interesting insights um, into that. Uh, and, you know, I'm going to agree with you. I thought Jadeng's uh, interview was excellent. Um, and I think it really built upon the conversation that we'd had with Doe Lee previously. So it felt, mm-hmm. it felt good to sort of continue on the, on the same kind of conversation. Um, and I have to say, you know, two of my favorites and not just because I really like these people, but because I'm working with them actively through people for bikes, but Luis Herrera and Roshan Austin, you know, are just, they're, they're kind of like rock stars, um, doing, doing some really amazing work, totally different. Right. But they've both found ways in which bikes, uh, fold into their work. Luis with community gardening and Roshan with affordable housing and livability in South Memphis. And so, I'm I'm continually impressed um, by all of our guests, um, but those those ones sort of stuck out to me for this theme. What was the most challenging thing that you discovered? Challenging may not be the right word. This will be my one confusing question of the podcast. Hopefully, mm-hmm. like what was the one kind of moment where it challenged a preconceived like notion or idea or thought you had? And I shared this on the podcast with Jesse singer, but I have, you know, over the past probably four or five years really made a point to use crash, not accidents when describing crashes that in, involve pedestrians and people who are riding bikes. Mm-hmm. But I really think that I did that like just because I like had read and knew on like an academic level why that was important, but really more on a surface sort of like academic level, I don't actually think I really thought about the word accident and the way that it does not, you know, project consequences or that actual actions were taken to create a crash and to create an, you know, an instance that affects someone's life, whether it's Mm -hmm. a, a near miss crash or an actual crash. I don't think I actually really spent time unpacking both of those words and how those words, whether it has to do you know, with a crash or Jesse Singer's kind of great examples of, you know, other accidents, someone, you know, accidentally shooting someone that these are not accidents. This is sort of a societal, um, you know, blame avoidance that we're using. So for me, that's something that I've thought about and mold over. And, you know, I'm sure shared over wine with my friends obnoxiously since then about how I just was like, okay, like, I won't use the word accident anymore, but didn't actually think about the really level of importance about why that was important. Mm-hmm. That's mine. Nice. I mean, I would say, you know, from my perspective, you know, I was pretty skeptical when we talked to Arelli and Rachel about their work with sustainable cycles. I, 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 what I, were you skeptical about? I was just skeptical of the link between sort of, you know, their mission to, to promote women's health and menstrual health and, and the bicycling piece of that, I just wasn't, it felt like, you know, there's a lot of sort of like bicycle oriented charity bicycle rides and other kinds of things where the bicycle itself isn't really consequential to the actual mm-hmm. mission of the organization. And you know, I'll admit that I, and I, I think I did on the episode that was, that I was pretty skeptical that of, of what that was. It felt, I wasn't sure if it was very loose, but it turns out it's actually a really potent and uh you know key facet of of the program and i after talking with both of them i i totally understood you know both from a philosophical origin for sort of you know why bicycling ties into those things and and but also from their the point of sustainability and and the work that they're doing it it felt like at the end of that conversation 
I had a greater understanding of how all of that linked together. Um, and, you know, I, I felt like it was one of the more powerful conversations that we had in terms of people that are doing some stuff, right? I mean, Rachel. Well, I think it's a great example. Sorry to interrupt. I'm not sorry that I interrupted you, but I'm acknowledging that I interrupted you. <laughs> Thanks. Go. Um, it really is, I think, a good example of this truly sort of like holistic circle of reducing dependence on kind of multiple things mm-hmm. um, in this kind of full circle way that I really enjoyed. And I don't think I was really pumped about it because I think menstruation education and things like the diva cup that we discussed are like really important for women's health on a global level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like was just really encouraged to hear this full circle story. Yeah. And more recently, you know, we talked to uh, Donia um, just last week and, you know, to sort of answer your question about what I found the most challenging every, you know, every time I sort of read or talk to or hear about words of wisdom coming from Adonia, I think it always challenges me to, you know, reassess, uh, what's happening within bike advocacy to reassess, you know, my role, um, with sort of, you know, promoting diversity and representation within bike advocacy. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the re, there's a reason that Adonia is our most uh, requested guest in podcast history. It's because she has a lot of really important things to say, um, a lot of really great thoughts, and a lot of uh, actionable uh, comments to make on the state of bike advocacy here in the U.S. Agreed. Our conversation with Adonia also really helped influence, and I need to, I'm going to write her a note, actually, a real note to thank her about this, but... I had been kind of struggling around how we're challenging ourselves here in Memphis to put together a strategic plan around our community engagement efforts and developing them further around bike share. Mm -hmm. And I think she had this great point about that we all know, but it was helpful to hear again that, you know, wouldn't it be great if, you know, people who had funding around transportation or community engagement just actually supported organizations that were already existing in the, in the neighborhoods you want to work in. And that actually is now kind of a, and we were working that way, but hearing it and hearing it from her really helped that, you know, I think Explore Bike Share won't necessarily be doing any programming on their own. We'll fund, you know, CDCs and organizations that have been in neighborhoods for, you know, 50 years to, you know, create programming that works within their current services that they're providing and just ensure that, you know, the funding that we're fortunate enough to have to, to launch a bike share system is actually directly going into neighborhood organizations and, and is not necessarily, you know, being kept within the R 501c3. It'll be distributed all throughout our service area. Yeah. It's super. I mean, that's, that's the way that, uh, that I'm trying to set up the big jump, you know, when we're, when we're, we're getting ready in the next couple of years to really start, you know, providing resources and money for cities to think more intensely about increasing their efforts. And the model that we're using is just that, right? We're going to go through the organizations that are already sitting there on the ground and fund them either through capacity or resources to, you know, to help expand what they're already doing. You know, in some ways, in some ways when you sort of like think about it, it just makes sense to do it that way. It's not even that it's like revolutionary in terms of no, you know, it's being, simple, really being diverse and making sure that allocation of resources is equitable, but you're like, Oh, they're doing the work already. They just need more stuff to do it better or to do it bigger or to do it wider. Uh, and I don't have to do it myself. So it's less work for me. People are going to be, more engaged and more bought in to people in the community who have already doing this work. It's, it's not rocket science at the end of the day. No, not at all. For me, it felt like, you know, there's a ton of effort kind of talking about, I think people make potentially who come from not neighborhoods where you want to do community engagement. in, and of course it's more, most successful if there's already, you know, institutional sort of services like a CDC that's really successful, but I think really looking at the resources there can make your community community engagement plan look a hell of a lot less intimidating because you're not trying to like create this authenticity that will never actually be authentic authentic mm-hmm. because you're kind of avoiding or, or, or not thinking of, you know, players in a neighborhood that already have relationships and who actually have all of the knowledge that you really want to have to make sure you're, 
you know, providing a service and amenity to that neighborhood. It's just supporting them and not trying to like create a new wheel and roll it in. That could be a pun. I, I may use that as a pun someday. Well, I think I think there's some additional advantage, right, of having those local groups. I, I think a lot. I've been thinking a lot about lately about representation and what that what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, this is this is this is related. Um, go with me on this. So I've been I've been moderately active in a little chat room uh, around another like podcast network that does a lot of like star Wars and movie and pop culture kind of shows. And so I've been active in this, in this chat room in my, can free, you elaborate on active? Uh, I see moderately active. I'm, I, I read more than I type into okay. it, but when I type into it, I really get into it. Um, but I've been really busy at work. So I've, my, my interest and ability to, to dedicate, a fierce amount of time to chatting online has been pretty limited. So, um, but anyways, there was this cult, there was this whole conversation around a third party star Wars podcast. Bear with me here where mm, this particular podcast is, has, is a bit notorious in the star Wars world for being pretty against diversity within star Wars um, to the point of sort of you know belittling people who uh, disagree with them, and they they kind of have a reputation for being sort of white guy bullies within the Star Wars podcast realm. They they have a lot of listeners, and largely due to the fact that they're one of the oldest and longest standing Star Wars podcasts as well. But I don't I can't listen to them because they're they're just obnoxious in so, in so many ways. But anyways, they had there was a guy on there who went on this like ten minute rant about how diversity in Star Wars is ruining Star Wars and it's ruining his experience and yada, yada, yada. So there was this whole discussion about this guy's rant in this chat room. And I wrote something about representation because this question came up like, you know, why does diversity matter? Why does it matter who's being represented when you're, when you're seeing sort of, you know, people on the movie screen or reading about people in stories and it struck me that as I was sort of writing this this response about why representation matters in Star Wars, that it e- equally applies to why representation matters in everything else. Uh, you know, why does it matter in your community outreach? Why does it matter in terms of your bike share operations? Why does it matter in terms of how you sort of structure your programs and interactions with the community? And you know, it's it's funny. I think th- I think there's so, there's so many things right that sort of this show and the discussions that we have sort of filter into other aspects of our lives. And it, it was, it really wasn't until I wrote this out and I was like, Oh, this is the same conversation that we're having talking about why it's important to have community ambassadors working on your bike share program that look like other people from the neighborhood. Um, and yeah, you know, I don't know that I want to read this, but in general, I, I, and maybe I'm being like too philosophical here, but you know, I sort of get to this point that to live in a democratic society, uh, representation is a key component of democracy. You know, we actually elect people to represent us, if, if we want to use the same word, uh, to stand in our place when we're when issues of public service come up to come up to vote, and we, we you know we we elect these people to represent us. And the degree to which we, you know, elect a person has a lot to do with how similar that person is in our own identities, our own ideals, our our standards of conduct, how we think, and that we have the ability over time, if we feel like that person is no longer representing us, you know, to change that person. We we elect a new person to represent us. Um, But a lot of times in communities across the U.S., you know, choosing representatives for a variety of things, you know, take it from... Uh, bike sharing uh, launch or a uh, protected bicycle lane project, the people sort of, you know, making those decisions aren't necessarily representative of those people. And, you know, to sort of summarize it, I basically, I wrote something like, you know, democracy demands that we make sure that our representation in real life and in fiction is equitable for all those that would participate. 
it's about maybe the only time I've ever invoked democracy in a chat room about Star Wars. But I'm impressed. Uh, you know, I think I think it I think it sort of holds true. Like you know, and that it, it's a really important facet of that what we are doing as bike advocates, what we do as you know people who work in cities or people who are working in communities, is we we have to make sure that those that are making the decisions actually represent the people that are actually living there. And sometimes that means like people like you and I, Sarah, two white cisgendered people, we have to sort of take a step back, empower those people to make their own decisions, uh, provide them the the resources, the advice, the expertise that they need. uh, But ultimately just to let, to let them make the call. And, you know, I, I was trying to think back into my past, you know, working in the city of Memphis and people always people will always get to the right answer right they'll they'll always get to a solution that actually that you wanted to get to but you just have to give you have to be able to provide space time patience room for people to get there on their own you know i never worked in a single community that didn't say they wanted slower cars on their streets nope nobody said hey we, we want speeding cars on our street um, because we feel that's the safest way. Nobody ever says that, but in the solutions that they would give to sort of, you know, sort of create that environment to create a slower traffic environment, oftentimes included bicycle lanes. They oftentimes included infrastructure for bicycles that could aid in lowering vehicular speeds on their street. But the ways that we would go about getting to that point, to getting to that where they were selecting that idea as the solution, as part of the solution for their problem, uh, were drastically different. And it was really about, you know, making sure that the leaders in those neighborhoods had all of the information that they needed, making sure that those leaders had the support uh, for whenever I was doing at the city. Um, you know, they should have the report, the, the support of local advocates in, in choosing things, but ultimately allowing them to, you know, seek their own path and make sure that whatever solution is actually uh, come to is representative of the needs, the desires, the wants, and the perspectives of those people living in that particular neighborhood. That's beautiful. Did you write that in your blog post as well? Nope. I guess that would have been very off topic. Didn't go that far. Yeah, I I was more responding to this sort of like rant piece and talking about representation um, in that. So it's it's a bit it's a bit boring if you don't want to read all of the other stuff. So along the lines of the representation piece, I've been mulling this over as well and have had some similar mulling over conversations with kind of neighborhood folks here in Memphis is let's use, you know, organization X decides that, you know, it has heard from a neighborhood that there's a need for a widget. And so it's going to infuse, you know, a neighborhood organization to support this widget, you know, with funding. And it wants to make sure that that you know, widget is implemented in this neighborhood in a way that authentically represents that neighborhood. But I think there's, I guess I've been struggling with like, is that like, what's the line of being supportive and having that neighborhood be represented to use the widget as ever they wanted, but also not putting this like terrible amount of like pressure without the neighborhood having all the necessary like research resources or, you know, diluting representation because a neighborhood, I don't, we may have to cut this out. I don't, I'm not making any sense. What I am lo- I doing? I did, lost did you. I, I get, lost you in organization X. <laughs> I just get, I got eclipsed. <laughs> you'll, I'm sorry. I'm going to make this a horrible editing job for you. No problem. I'm trying to get to the, my question. It's really good. I just can't get it out of my brain. To reframe your initial question in more <laughs> in more vague terms, the question you're asking is whether or not an organization with power, money, and influence is essentially buying the opinions of well-respected or organizations working in communities. Correct. And you're unsure whether those community organizations may or may not share the same goals. And, and does that does that create a conflict um, 
you know, sort of in terms of what the ultimate outcomes might be? Yes. I would say maybe, but if, if organization X has done the work of building the relationships and trusted partnerships with those community organizations, you know, if they've, if, if, if the groundwork has been laid in a way where there's true authentic relationships there and the neighborhood organization thinks that the services that organization X have to offer are truly something that the neighborhood would benefit from and wants to deliver, you know, provide those additional services can use the actual resources and money to, you know, provide this new offering. I don't, I don't think that that creates a problem, right? It's, it's the neighborhood, um, it's the neighborhood leadership sort of saying, we, we would like this. We'd like to facilitate getting it out and we want to be your, we want to be the partner organization to actually do it. You know, I think the, the flip side to that is that if, if, if that, if that's a, if that's a sour relationship, right? If that, if that, if it is the case where you're sort of saying, suggesting that organization X is sort of buying its influence in neighborhoods, uh, if you've if you've laid that groundwork and have a have a real relationship with those leaders, you know it won't ever come to that point. Those leaders would say, you know, we're not we're not ready for this yet. We're right. we're this neighborhood is not prepared for that. So I think if you if you feel like you the question is not whether or not the organization, organization X is buying its influence. The the real question is has organization X X done the work of building true, authentic, honest relationships with the community partners. That's yeah. that's the step where this gets broken down. I don't think it's in the latter piece. Thank you for answering my second confusing question of the day. Uh, asking and answering. Asking yeah. and answering. Jeez <laughs> Louise. <laughs> Uh, that leads us, though, to our next topic. Cause, Fantastic cause, segue. Because we're, we're sort of like segueing right into it. We've been talking about it for a minute. But I, I think I'm going to let, let you go into this because it's a, it's a, it, you've selected the last topic and this one. <laughs> yes, I have full reins currently over the Bike Nerds podcast. <laughs> so we are entering into the next theme, which is drum roll. Bike chair. Ta-da. Ta-da. So our goal is to have conversations with individuals launching bike share systems, running bike share systems, doing some of the community engagement efforts that we've kind of talked very briefly about in the last 72 episodes. Um, And my real goal is to really kind of talk to bike share leaders and, you know, Fargo, North Dakota, up to, you know, New York City or London. So really get a snapshot of what's happening um, across the nation and maybe even internationally, because I think the beauty of bike share is it's flexible and it really becomes the fabric of of the city and reflects the city that it's in. So Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to have kind of a lot of different conversations from smaller cities to mid-sized cities to larger cities and you know, as community engagement and equity becomes this very large and important and valuable conversation that a lot of people are having on an industry level um, to really see, you know, what does different programming look in a, you know, a city of 50,000 people to a city, you know, that has a, a million or more. So I am personally really excited because I'm currently working most of my time <laughs> to launch Bike Share here in Memphis. We'll no. be launching in the spring of 2018. I didn't know that about you. Yeah, I know. So it's something I live and breathe um, more hours than I would like to admit during the day. And so I'm excited to nerd out about bike share. As I've been paying attention to recent news about bike share, it feels like there's some growing new controversy around bike share. Um, yes, with we're going to talk about the controversy. The as implementation well. of dockless systems in bikes. Yep. Um, you know, Seattle is sort of a test ground right now for sort of how that how that sort of functioning within the city environment, and other cities are creating some backlash against that from an official standpoint. That that seems to be a piece of bike share as it continues to evolve. How old is the bike share industry? 
The bike share industry in the U.S. is around eight years old. Eight years old. If you talk about what they kind of, as you know, bike share with the stations um, today, Mm -hmm. internationally, it is older. But not by much. Not by much. So then you can you could even argue that it could even be 15 years old. When, you know, Portland and Seattle's were doing, you know, bike share systems that were, you know, yellow bikes that were distributed throughout the city that had locks that kind of mm-hmm. moved in a much more, looks more similar to a kind of an analog dockless system. Yeah, I mean, so at, at best, bike share is about the age of an eighth grader. If you want to be that generous with it, but but the more modern system that we know today is really is really like a third grader in some ways. Yeah, I, I have to keep reminding myself that when I read about bike share and I, I sort of see things and I'm like, that's just stupid. Why would you do that? And it's like, oh yeah, this is a really it's a young, new really yeah, young very, and really yeah. new industry, and people are still fi- figuring it out on the fly um, in in a lot of ways and. You know, I think that's a really interesting aspect of this. I, I'm also curious to know, and maybe maybe as you're sort of scheduling the guests, you can maybe weave in somebody to sort of talk about this. But bike share exists both in this space of sort of um, bicycle, the bicycle as transportation, bicycle riding, bike advocacy. It definitely fits into that space, and it's one of the reasons you know that we'll be talking about it. But it also is in this broader transportation and mobility sharing space um, that is troubling in some ways, I think, for a lot of cities who who struggle to, to pay their bills for their public transportation system, who struggle to get roads repaved, who have a lot of other mobility and access inequities that exist within their cities and you know these there's these new industries that are popping up that are disrupting you know sort of traditional transportation options available to people things like you know ride sharing like uber and lyft and companies creating their own private public transportation systems that you know then take away riders from the public system um therefore you know sort of this creating this reoccurring uh, egg and chicken where public transit agencies are continually looking for new sources of revenue, but they're finding that revenue is actually going to these other more private oriented pieces. And it feels like bike share sort of is riding the edge of that sort of, that sort of issue that's arising in cities and this issue, this, the other side, which is that it's creating vibrant places and it's putting people out on the streets and it's providing new opportunities and access for bikes. There's a lot of really positive that's happening and it's quietly sort of sitting on the, on the fence, I think in some ways. Um, and I, I'd be really interested to have somebody sort of talk about bike share from a global mobility point of view. Um, and thinks about thinking about the ways in which the entire city's transportation system is being impacted by these new shared services. Absolutely. I am also would love to get to more of, I think you and I have both had this conversation about, you know, is bike share a scapegoat for kind of equity issues on a larger transportation scale? Because they are, I think, potentially getting different revenue streams and funding streams that, you know, mass transit may not have. And so, and I'm not as close to what the public transportation equity conversations are, Mm -hmm. but it feels like the bike share conversations are, are loud. And I think that's really important, but I wonder if because of this frothiness of this new sexy industry that's coming up that, you know, people are really focusing on how do we make bike share equitable and not necessarily looking at, how is our public transit that's been servicing our residents for X amount of years become equitable? How do they work mm-hmm. together? You know, is there an answer that isn't bike share for a certain neighborhood or even for an entire city? Um, I'm really interested in kind of those sort of conversations, almost like I would love to hear kind of a counter to why bike share shouldn't launch in a city or shouldn't launch in a neighborhood as well. Yeah, it feels like they're superbly um, prolific right now. And it feels, you know, when you start reading the list of cities that have bike share, you sort of ask yourself like, why do they have bike share? They have like nothing that supports the use of bike share in any way, shape or form. And to your question, right. Of like, 
why shouldn't why should a city not consider doing bike exactly sharing? um like yeah. could those resources be spent on you know rehauling the way that people purchase bus passes or you know trying out something innovative around on-demand transit mm-hmm. um or something that looks totally like i can't even imagine because my brain doesn't work that way. I'm interested in that side as well. I wonder if we could get like an anti-bike share person on the podcast. Hmm. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. It, it feels like more so than I'm reading news about sort of bike lane controversies around the country. I'm reading lots and lots of news about bike share, both positive, mm-hmm. positive and negative. You know, it's definitely hitting the airwaves. It definitely resonates with the crowd larger than just bike advocates. Um, you know, it's getting national press because there's been some, you know, big, some big money and some big corporate sponsorships have come in to, to bike share recently. Um, you know, it makes them, you know, to, to your earlier confusing, vague question about organization X and <laughs> communities, you know, if you want to scale that up a bit, right, should communities being sort of serving as sort of in the, in your metaphor as the local community organizations be accepting funding from big corporate sponsors for bike share. If they're not quite ready for bike share to be a part of what's actually happening there. Yes. I'm just, uh, just trying to, trying to bring a little bit of sanity to your original question. I appreciate it. I need yeah. it. I mean, you know, I saw an eclipse today, so crazy. And we're in mercury and retrograde as well. I don't know what that means, but so big things are happening. Um, <laughs> I want to make a small point back to bike share history. Yep. Because I misspoke. So in 2007, Valib, which I'm not pronouncing as a French person would, and Paris launched yep. with 6,000 bikes. Yep. And then in 2008 is when DC launched a system that eventually transformed into their capital bike share program. Nice. In 2010, it turned into. Capital bike, and then in Minneapolis and Denver also launched in 2010. Yeah, around the time of the uh, election that was happening. Yes, I I remember reading about Denver. It's a lot. Their system was created as a part of the Democratic National Convention that was happening here to get the Democrats around town. Yeah, they did it for the Republicans as well that year, that same year. A little, little is a little, little less uh, reported. Um, and really? a, little, a little under the radar, but yeah, the same, the same people organized it for the RNC that same year. Oh, cool. We have a bike here in the office that has, uh, Barack Obama and John McCain's name on it. It's sort of, it's one, it's like a leftover bike from that whole effort. Whoa. And, uh, and it, yeah, it was created for both, for both conventions and both parties. I feel like that should be in a museum. It is. It's right here in the people for bike. I see it. I see it across from my desk. I see it every day. That's cool. Yeah, if you came here, I'll let you. I'll let you ride it around the office I'll, a little bit. I'll get there. Thank you. I appreciate your very generous <laughs> offer. Um, you know, I, I was getting ready to talk and record with you yesterday. We didn't schedules didn't work out, but at, as I was after we canceled and as I was like sitting there, I thought to myself, I said, "Who am I? Okay, who am I? Because I I know that if you had been sitting there with me, you would have said, "Who are you?" And <laughs> I I had on like a pair of like uh, like athletic shorts, you know, just a okay. pair of shorts, no big deal. Uh, but then I also had on a tank top. What? A flat a flat build hat. Oh my god! And my shoes with no socks. And, Would I even recognize you? It's just been a few months. And then, and then it sort of hit me that I've, I've purchased like three tank tops in the last two months. What, so, what does that even just, mean? I would like to make the statement before I answer what it means. <laughs> we literally, I think, the last time we chatted on the podcast, you were saying how underprepared you were for the winter. Yep. Which takes up a good amount of time in the state that you live on, which yep. I don't think includes tank tops. It does not. And you are now acquiring tank tops. I have three. That's insane. I never bought a tank what, top can before. Can we talk about like how thick the tank part is? Is it thin? Is like a... It's like a regular like cotton t-shirt, but it's just a tank top instead. But it just doesn't have sleeves? Where are you purchasing sleeves from? Um... You know, I got one from work for free. Why? It was like leftover from an event that we did. There's like, 
If you want one, I can send you one. Actually, there's I like, don't want there's one. Like, and you, there's like ten thousand tank tops here. I'm not sure. And what. you were like, "Oh, this is nice. No sleeves." Well, it was like the second one that I acquired because the first one I bought, I was at, I was shopping. It has Star Wars on it. It was on oh, sale God. for like it was on sale for like four dollars, and I was like, oh. "Sure, I'll get a four dollar tank top." And I've been wearing it around the house, like on the weekend. Do you wear it out in public? No, I've never worn it in public. You so you have three like indoor tank tops, and the third one I have is like is I bought for running, but I have oh, but I haven't actually now. I haven't actually worn it running though because I after I bought it I was like I kind of like having a sleeve so I can like wipe my sweat on. So I haven't actually worn it. It's just, it's just been sitting at the house. Would you ever wear like wristbands or like a I think that's terry cloth headband when you were in? I'm kind of like anti terry cloth. I well, because you wear a flat billed hat now. You're so cool. I mean, you remember in the '90s, you, there were like terry cloth shirts. I think I blocked that part out. I know. In the 90s. Well, that's why I'm anti terry cloth. I I remember having like a terry cloth polo, and that was that's that was disgusting. Too yeah, it was. <laughs> there was also it was also the '90s, right? Which was tough. The 90s are back, fashion-wise. Maybe really? that's why you're... I give you three months and you'll have a Terry Gloss shirt. No, that's so gross. <laughs> you might as well just like put a towel around your shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could just wear a towel. Okay. So I'm glad you weren't there to sort of witness that. I'm so happy that's... I wasn't there, but I'm really glad you shared it with me. But I also like, I'm like, oh man, I should also go to the gym and like work my arms out a little bit. <laughs> Look at now that now I can see my now, arms. Now that I, I wear, now that I wear, now that I wear tank tops, I gotta I get the arms to match. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Um, what is the biggest bike share question you want to be answered? I want to be answered the question. I think this question of whether or not communities should invest in bike share um, is maybe a really important question to get asked. Does it make sense, or could you build, you know, a couple million dollars worth of trails, or could yeah. you invest in better public transportation as a whole? Could you invest in, you know, all these other things? Why would you make the decision to invest in bike share at the expense of something else? That's that's the question I would, that I'd like to have answered. I think that's the question I've always had for bike share. I think even when I was like, you know, working to sort of to to get this thing started with you and in your firm. That was that was always the question, like why we why did we never do it? And I said, well, I always found other things to spend money on that I thought mm-hmm. were more, that were they, I thought they were more important. Um, so yeah, that's that's the question. You, I, I'm going to wait. I will be attending the North American Bike Bike Share Association annual conference Ooh, in next week in Montreal, Ooh. and I am going to wait to reveal my question until after I attend that. <laughs> Is it because you have a question and you it might get answered there? No, I'm really I'm interested in your question, but I'm also interested in the ever changing future of bike share mm-hmm. that goes beyond the new dockless systems that are interesting because they're mostly VC backed. Yep. Um, as well as you know the e bikes becoming more and more prominent and actually being ridden at high levels in cities that have made that investment. Um, the level that smartphones are interacting with bikes and then things that I haven't don't even know about because I haven't attended the conference yet. So as we're, I think, you know, bike shares now in the U.S., almost 10 years old or eight years old, whatever the date is, I think we're becoming the industries maybe hit this level of frothiness where there's there's room for VC, there's room for a new level of startup and innovation. And so I'm really kind of looking forward to, to find out like what's next or is there someone that has an idea of what a bike share system would look like in 10 years? Like what does city bike look like in 10 years? You know, it'd be interesting to have on the show, uh, somebody who's working on a more low key style bike share, um, system. I was actually talking with somebody recently. Like the amps like the Netherlands model? Well, maybe even more more low key than that, you know, thinking like universities often have yeah, bike, bike like lending higher, programs mm-hmm. or there's there's organizations that have bike library programs where you can go and check out bicycles. It's it's it runs essentially like bike share but you know, it's not it's not as prolific um prolifically spread throughout the city. But I, I was talking to an individual last week 
who is concerned about sort of big corporate backed bike share coming into their city. They've had some pushback from certain neighborhoods who don't feel like bike share is for them. But yet at the end of the day, they still have these mobility needs and bicycling serves some of those mobility needs. And so they're working sort of independently of what the city is doing to sort of create uh, uh, an official or a formal lending program with partner organizations um, throughout throughout this neighborhood. And they don't want they don't want the big dock systems. They don't want mm-hmm. they don't want big corporate interests sort of dictating all of that. They're sort of going to do it themselves. And it's just kind of interesting to know. You know that, uh, and think about the role that you know this ever-growing and evolving industry is is having. And are there places where this is working really, really well? Um, and there's clearly places where it's not working well. Yeah, it's a. I think the last maybe year or year and a half for me has been just it's ever changing, and it gets kind of from someone that's part of launching a system right now. You know, you're. You've signed a contract and then a new shiny bike share system that's stockless and cheaper shows up. And then there's another piece of innovation over there. And I'm also interested, like, how people are kind of making decisions on on what shiny thing to go after or, or what, you know, to stay, stay the course as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got I could this is obviously a tailored theme for myself and I hope everyone finds it interesting, but I'm really excited. Our next theme, our next out. theme is going to be biking in star Wars. So biking. Nope, it's going to be biking and wine. I'm just taking over. Oh, okay. It's, I hope that means you're going to be editing future episodes. As well. Just kidding. Never mind. Whatever you right. want, Kyle. We're back to star Wars. Um, I've got to say, I'm really excited. New star Wars movie coming out in December. We're gearing up for it. Uh, starting September 1, Journey to the Last Jedi. That's exciting. I'm excited because there's this new rosé brand, and they do white wine too, and it they, their packaging is like a 40, like a 40-ounce beer yeah. container. But it's like really good French wine. Huh. So that's what I'm excited All about. All right, there we go. <laughs> I think uh, I think with that, Sarah, I think uh, we should kick it back to the listeners. Stay okay. tuned for Bike Share episodes coming out in the next couple of weeks. Thanks, everybody, as always, for tuning into the Bike Nerds podcast. Uh, make sure to tell your friends. Look us up on Twitter. Look us up on Facebook. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review. Uh, be well, everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And go to Sarah's. And sign up to win a public toolbox. God, you guys have got to get one of these it's public the, toolboxes. It's the coolest prizes. Man, Saris is so great. Thanks, Saris. Bye. The Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of the Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OAM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoamnetwork.com slash thebikenerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at thebikenerds, and on Facebook, The Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com.